1: On today's episode we once again have Paul Patera on as a guest. If you didn't listen to the last episode we discussed some of the tools and techniques that Paul uses for hunting and it was a lot of really great info so I definitely recommend listening to that one if you haven't already. This episode is more of a BS session in which we discuss a variety of topics. Discussion areas on this episode include tag strategies, broadheads and arrow setups, shot selection, tracking dogs, proficiency tests, Staying warm and cold weather, saddle hunting platforms, and some of the modifications that we've done to various ones, and tips for efficiency with both tree stands and saddles. Before we dive in, a quick message about Spartan Forge. The app is available on the Apple App Store and Google Play. A huge feature is the Intel tab, which allows hunters to view the upcoming detailed forecast in an area, including temperature, pressure, wind, and moon data, but also provides the proprietary deer movement prediction algorithm. Instead of stating just whether or not it's going to be a good or bad day to hunt, the app predicts the type of movement most likely based on the conditions, whether it's core area movement, transition area, or full range daylight activity, all based on GPS collar deer studies. You can use that information then to help inform your hunt. The app also has a built-in journaling feature and a fully featured map, which you can use to e-scout and navigate in the field. Use the code DIY for a discount on a Spartan Forage membership. With that, let's dive into the episode. Recap, so far, you've shot two bucks already this year, or is yeah. it two or three? Yeah, I got, got the two, two big ones in Jersey. And so now is your focus shifting back to, like, the the late season stuff with, like, those um, those areas that you have gravitated toward, like, the last couple of years where you got some of those beans, but then you got, like, the, the bigger, mountainous-type uh, country yeah. pretty close by?
0: Yeah, that's actually where I killed those bucks this year, over in that that stuff in the mountains
1: but not not so close to the beans more up in the mountains remind me if i remember from our discussion last year when we had this like that late season podcast was there was like a number of deer with one being like bigger than the rest that you were chasing late season were any of those deer do you think you know some of the deer that you shot this year or do you think those are totally separate animals
0: uh they were different okay yeah there, it was a. Uh, the same it's the same same pattern but it's just farther farther down okay down it's like probably probably like eight miles away from where i was hunting those deer last year gotcha but it's the same same thing it's the mountain range with the deer coming down off the mountain heading to the the bean fields and the agriculture
1: and do you have then two tags left to fill in that state for like what Um, you have available
0: Yeah, I got muzzle muzzleloader and I can fill a bow tag. But I think I'm going to focus on scouting up in Pennsylvania with my buddy for the next week or so. Because he wants to check some spots. I figured I'll I'll go with him and show him him what I do. Nice. See see if I can help him out a little bit. Because he's on some pretty nice deer up there too. He just hasn't sealed the deal on them yet. So hopefully if he follows me around and sees how I'm doing it, he'll have some... Idea on how he's got to do it because I, I just don't think he was aggressive enough last year or this year to get on the the bucks he was on. He was on some really nice deer.
1: I wish I had more time to travel. There's a, you know a handful of guys that I'd like to go and and just like spend a day in the woods with. You're one of them. Um, I like I like doing that a little bit. You know, just getting a feel for what it's like. You know, sort of a day in the life. Uh, I, I feel like that's the best education you can get a lot of times.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you what. If you want to meet me in next year, you're more than welcome to. And we, we ran a ton of cameras this year. We had a lot of daylight bucks on cameras on scrapes that last week, October. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go in there kind of before the Army shows up and starts hunting, you know, before all the pressure gets in there. That yeah. way I, I might be able to get on a buck with a pattern. You know, he might not be like cruising like rut cruising but i think he'll be more killable if he's coming out of a bedding area and dropping down into like scrapes and stuff like that and or hitting rub lines or something
2: you know just
0: like doing his thing but not like not doesn't have any does to chase because once they lock on a doe i think it's a pain in the
1: butt i agree I, i think you hear that from a lot of guys too and i know i definitely see that being the case in the places that i hunt out this year, for some of the deer I was after, was man, it was like my window, like the easy window, easier window was like I'd say October 20th through like November 1st, and then after mm-hmm. that it was it's like chaos. You know, it's yeah, like you might, you you a might lot, see a buck, you
0: need a but, lot of deer.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like
0: if, if we don't have a high deer population, it's hard because all those big bucks are going to just be on does every single day. Right. You know, and it's just a pain in the butt because it. How many days How many days of the season do you think a big buck is actually looking
1: for a doubt in daylight, you know? I mean, it probably doesn't have to, depending on what the you know ratio is, it doesn't have to be that many.
2: Yeah, he might
1: find one in a couple hours at night. I mean, when they want to find one, it's not going to be hard
0: for him to find one. Yeah. You know, if they know where they're going. Like the way they – because they already spent all that preseason in October walking around and checking them you know, and running scrapes. They know exactly when those, those does are going in the heat. You know, I really feel like that's what they just, they know. It's like, you see the younger deer that they're, they're looking around cause they don't really have an idea what's going on yet. But those older bucks, I think they just, they know exactly when that does coming in the heat, they can smell it. You know, they can sense it in that scrape.
1: Yeah. I ran cameras on mostly scrapes this fall and the window where the biggest most big deer were daylighting was definitely like during that, like, you know, some people say even up to like the seventh, eighth of November can be really good. But for me, Mm -hmm. it was, it was even before that that they started to really kind of tail off and at least in terms of like when I was getting pictures of them. Um, and even on November 1st, I think it's pretty sure it was November 1st, might've been October 31st. Uh, there was one of those big bucks. I I saw like hounding a doe, pretty hard through some um through some blowdown and it was like kind of once once that shift happened it was like i would still get a lot of deer on the cameras but not as many of those big ones and it would just be like very sporadic after that point
0: Mm -hmm. well i I got on a buck locked on a doe the like probably like mid-october this year i got a, a real big buck that's the one i i missed yeah I, I missed that sucker twice in the same day. He was he was so locked on that doe he wasn't going anywhere. You know, I I literally I I my buddy called me up because I was at work and he calls me up. It's like eight o'clock in the morning. He's like, "There's a giant buck locked on a doe on the backside of this guy's field." He's like, "Right behind that is the is the private or uh, the public land." I'm like, "He's probably going in and out of that." I'm like, "Well, I I know exactly where it is. I'm going to go see if I can't." get in that party yeah and i i took off from work and i just jetted down the road and drove in there i was in my blue jeans and a sweatshirt chasing that deer around and i mean i got on that deer and i kind of like worked through the air and am like trying to figure out where he is glassing over to crp grass and stuff and then all of a sudden i kicked up a kicked up the doe i busted the doe out and she goes one way And then I look and I see the buck and he sees me, makes direct eye contact with me and takes off and runs the other way. I'm like, holy crap. So I I turned around and I went right back up to my, my Jeep and I got a set of rattling antlers out of my Jeep. I went down right where that doe was, where I blew that doe out. I sat for like an hour and then I just crashed the antlers together as hard as I could. And that buck came in like 100 miles an hour right at me
1: we got on the ground at that point it sounded like yeah he was, he's just fired up absolutely fired up
0: and then that deer came in i couldn't get a shot at like 6 7 yards i couldn't get a shot at him he came in and he came in winded me again and blew out again and then the following day Well, I actually, I saw the buck then locked on that doe in the evening. I set up, up by the the field where it was locked on her in the field. I'm like, maybe she's going to go back out towards that field and he'll be right behind her. And I get set up uh, up up there on the property line and that buck comes, comes out and he stood in front of me for four hours, just standing over that doe, like in the afternoon. And then finally it got dark and I had to get out of there. and I just left my stand and everything right in the tree. And I, I left and I came right back in the morning in pitch black and got right back up in that tree. And literally I sat in that tree for like five minutes. And I hit my grunt call once it got shooting light and that buck came right in again. And I literally, he came in like 40 yards. I, I had a perfect shot standing broadside at 40. Of course, I didn't realize I was having all these mechanical issues at that point with my bow. Because what happened, my rest was my rest wasn't returning zero every time, but I wasn't catching it. Because like after you shoot the bow a couple times, it would start moving it and it would like go back where it's supposed to every time. But if I let it sit for a couple hours, I don't know, it would get like stuck again. Huh? If that makes if that makes sense, it was like it wasn't coming all the way back because it was like packed with. It was like packed when I took the rest apart and cleaned it. It was packed with dirt. Like up inside the the pivot, so it had like dirt up inside there, and it was getting getting like stuck every once in a while, something would get get right just perfect so it wouldn't rotate hundred percent so when I was shooting at my deer, my bow was uh, was wasn't tuned right every time, so but sometimes it would shoot perfect and other times it'd be no good
1: I had it happen once where my rest just wasn't raising up all the way. Like it only get up to 80, 90% like full in the upward position. And I actually had to get mine. I had to send mine in to get that fixed. Uh, But then my wife had another issue where it wasn't, I think it wasn't dropping all the way if I remember right. But what we ended up doing to to fix that was her, uh, her cord had actually like fallen out of the little, like, you know, the little spongy things or the, the rubber grippers that you put on your limb. Um, yeah. it, it came off of that. And so it was sliding around on her limb and giving a really inconsistent, like starting point. Mm-hmm. And by the time we finally realized that it was an easy fix, but for a while there, it was like, just pulling yeah, your like, hair out trying to figure on? out what was going on. Right.
0: Yeah. It, it, that, I, that played me all year. Cause I, I'm like freaking out. I'm thinking I'm like shooting really bad and I got like target panic or something. I'm like, what is wrong with me? I, I thought I was right on that deer. I'm like freaking out. Why did, why didn't I hit that deer? you know cuz i missed two two big bucks that year yep you know i'm like well, i'm like what is going on you know and then finally i figured it out i was like oh well duh but it was like man if i didn't if i would have figured that out sooner i would have shot a 150 inch 10 pointer yeah you know there's a beautiful buck cuz i i missed that deer in the morning and then i set up in the evening on the opposite side of the drainage and that buck came right back up, right at dark. And I missed him again at like 30 yards. I'm like, what is going on? I'm like, I was dead on that time. I'm like, I must be like, must be like punching the trigger or something. Yeah.
1: those are, those there's a tough, um, cause to a certain extent, if you have a lot of confidence in yourself, you can be like, oh, it's the equipment, right? Like that could, that's your first, it couldn't have been me. It had to be the equipment. But then it's like on the other the other way of looking at it is, you know, let's assume my equipment's good. Like what did I do wrong? And I don't know that there's necessarily yeah. like a a right or wrong way to tackle that that issue. Um, I feel like I'm I'm the type of guy who typically looks at the equipment first, unless I just know that it was a bad like a poorly executed shot. But mm-hmm. it was it was one of those things too. If you
0: shot a broadhead at a block next to a field point at 20 yards, it wasn't spread apart enough to really like go, Oh yeah, that's problem.
1: You know? Right.
0: But, but when I was shot at 30 plus, then it was like, wow, this thing's shooting like 12 inches high, but it wasn't, I I, should have, I should have been test testing it out at extended range. I think to figure that out, you know, I think I would have seen the, I would have seen the, the, the problem magnified a little bit. Yeah. You know, And I, and it was just like, you know, I'm like, here I am, like making sure everything's on half the time, shooting my bow with, in driveway under the headlights of my Jeep at night. Cause I'm like going hunting every day. You know, I'm, I should have just taken a, I should have just stopped hunting for one day and spent time just shooting my bow and figured it out. Yeah, but I, at the same time, I'm like, like you're saying, I'm, I'm I'm, blaming myself for it. I'm like, there's no way my bow's screwed up. I'm like, it's probably just me, you know, because a couple of years ago, I did go through some issues with target panic. I was shooting bad, so I was like, it's probably just me having demons again.
1: Well, it's good to know that it was an equipment thing because that's infinitely easier to fix than a, a mental game.
0: Yeah. As soon as it, once I knew it was an equipment thing, I'm like, oh, all right. I'm like, I feel much better about myself now. Yeah. You know, cause even the two bucks I killed, I didn't hit them perfect. You know, I hit them good, but I didn't hit them perfect. I, I was kind of upset with myself over that. Cause I'm like, that doesn't usually happen with me. I usually, I usually don't have any issues hitting deer. Yeah. Um. But it's all figured out now, and I can't wait to go shoot another one.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited myself for uh, the next, I guess, several weeks. I have a couple of tags that are still open. Realistically, most of my focus for, for the rest of the year is probably going to be toward the, the Iowa muzzleloader tag. But I still have a Wisconsin tag that I need to move some cameras around because uh, things have shifted since you know there's, it's been basically open rifle season for almost a rifle and or muzzleloader for almost a month. Um, And one of my cameras is still, it's getting one, like, really nice deer. And I think I know that one's, like, core area decently well. But there's still a a few other ones that I need to relocate. So I don't know how much time will be spent toward that versus Iowa. Iowa will probably have to be the priority, but uh, we'll kind of see how it goes. Yeah, I'm going to start getting points for Iowa, I think.
0: I'm going to start building those up. I want to shoot one with the bow out there. so It's going to be a while before I get out there, so I figured I'd just buy points every year so that I can go in wherever I want when I finally can go. Right. Because you
1: know, it's I'm probably not going to be able to do that trip every year. You know, I think that's an like 18-hour drive or something for me. <laughs> yeah, it's about like me driving out to Pennsylvania. What my wife and I have been talking about next year is you know, to, to try and avoid these scenarios where we have too many tags and like trying to fill everything at once, um, structure more to where early season we hunt Minnesota and Sam's after any buck and I'm after basically a traditional deer, I you know, hunt with my trad bow <laughs> in September and I just have low standards and, you know, shoot whatever. And then, okay, now we can move on and start focusing on Wisconsin focus on that through pre-rut and early rut, give ourselves all the time that we need Hunt there every day. And then if we both tag out there and it's like, Oh, now, now we got, you know, could buy a North Dakota tag, go hunt late rut out there. Could do like something else. Um, but that might be a you little know, bit easier way to, to segment our year. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it too. You can change it throughout the year, you know, throughout
0: every year you can do something like, okay, this year we're going to hunt it this way. You know, you can keep keep it different. Yep, keep it fresh. Always have something different. That's what next year. I'm I'm planning on. I want to do Maryland and West Virginia. You know, I might not even focus too much on Jersey next year. I might try to get over there and get one down in those two states. I want to get. I want to hunt some new states next year. Because I, I was planning on going this year, but I, it didn't work out, so I didn't get to go. So hopefully next year, try something different. Because everybody hunts down, everybody goes Midwest
1: to go hunting,
0: you know. Everybody wants to hunt those deer, so might as well try something different. I'll go down the Appalachian Mountain.
1: Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. Less of a destination yeah. for sure for out of staters. Yes, I figured
0: it might might find some little hit, hidden hot spots that nobody even thinks about. You know, you never know. You might wind up shooting something you never thought you'd shoot in a place like that. Yep, that's true. You know? That's even more rewarding when you do it that way. See, I got to get practicing with my bow pretty
1: soon. Get ready for winter bow. Yeah. Same here. Um, I, I've been contemplating moving my poundage back down, but it's still I've got everything set. Just because I don't want to monkey around with the tuning or anything.
0: That's I. I set mine at sixty
1: five. Yeah, mine's at seventy seventy six. I think right now.
0: Because I I I actually I like having it. I don't want to want it maxed out
1: because then it gives
0: me a little bit better adjustment.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So if I gotta, if I want to bring my poundage up or down to change something, I can do it that way. Yeah. Because sometimes like you get like you know you get colder weather and stuff. Your arrow trajectory changes a little bit, and instead of moving all your pins around, if you just take your poundage and drop your poundage a half a pound, all your all your pins will line back up again. Hmm. Yeah. Or you gotta bring it up a little bit and you just crank it up a little bit more and you're right back to all your pins it in the same place yeah it's a good way to do it and it gives you a little tuning you her a little bit the or whatever
1: yeah hopefully i won't have to monkey around with it too much last time i yeah. shot it it was still it was shooting decently while well. i made a couple you know minor tweaks um the biggest thing i think i feel like the strings can change tune
0: pretty drastically through temperature swing sometimes
1: yeah when you texted me earlier it uh when, when you were having your issues with your bow not hitting where you thought it should i went out and just checked mine and i was hitting like four inches high i think at 40 so i had to readjust everything but since that because that was it was still pretty cold i think when that happened um, so it really hasn't shifted too much but yeah i'm just going to continue to double check it yeah.
0: I'm like really tempted to put one of the uh the micro adjustable vapor trails on there. Uh-huh. So if I do have to do a tuning change, it's so much easier to just have the little click yeah. on the rest. I'm like, man, I'm like I never thought I would need something like that, but I'm like, man, it would be a lot simpler to tune something. And you're like, oh, I just loosen this bolt and one click and I'm back to normal. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I've got the that micro adjustable hamski and it's pretty nice for just when you know when you're close, and it's like you just give it a little bit more of a bump, and yeah. you don't have to worry it's about you don't have to like worry about you know breaking the screw loose, and then you're like trying to shift it just a little, you know, one little line over, and all of a sudden it slips and it goes four lines over, and you lost your spot, and you got to start yeah, all, all like over like, again. The-
0: yeah, I've done that multiple times. I did like some little little tweaks to the bow made my knocking points a little bit more solid. Changed some stuff around that
1: way. Yeah, I think I'm going to play around in the off-season with instead of like a limb-driven rest, I may try the the QAD style again, only because with that Matthews, it's got the little dovetail machined into the riser. Mm-hmm. And so it's like... And, and sometimes when I, when I take my quiver off my bow and I just like, I'm sitting on a, a stool and like ferns or like a clear cut and I want to mm-hmm. just like lay the bow in my lap, then that cord is like getting bent. So to, it's kind of awkwardly, you know, in the way. But then if I had a, a cable driven rest, it'd be like, you know, four ounces off the center of my bow and it's not likely to change too much. That cord isn't in the way. I don't know, I might might play around with it.
0: Yeah. I think Vapor Trail makes the uh dovetail for their mounts. Oh they do? I'll have to look into that. I I think they do. I'm pretty sure. I think you can if Vapor Trail is one of those companies, if you call them and ask them, they might not have it listed, but they'd be like, Oh yeah, we can machine that. But yeah. If they're small enough they do stuff like that still. So it's it never
1: hurts to ask. They're pretty close to me. I think they, I think they're in like central Minnesota.
0: Yeah, I thought they were. They used to be in Pennsylvania, I think. I think they were. Maybe they sh- they moved or something. They're nice. They always answer the phone when you call them.
1: Yeah the Which the one guy them? Ears or whatever his na- nickname is. I remember I had an email discussion with him when I was having issues in my rest and he's like, well, it could be, you know, this or that. And I was like, well, I'm kind of handy. If you you know tell me what to look at, I can, I might, you know, can try and fix it myself. And he's like, he thought about it a little bit. He's like, ah, just send it in. What the heck. And I sent the rest in and like a week later I got it back and he's had like this list of, you know, things that he had done to it. He's like, I, you know, change this out to something new, replace this piece, had, you know, a fresh strip of moleskin on the thing. It looked like a brand new rest.
0: Yep, that's the way you do it right there. I'm I'm like really really happy with my arrows right now at least. Yeah, I think that setup is going good now. Cause it the arrows are more of a pain in the butt than the stupid bow I think. Figuring out what you want with that.
1: Yeah, they can especially in you know, compound bows are pretty good now. Like there, it's not like the compound bows that. Are- you know, 15, 20 years ago where things could really change, like the weather conditions and whatnot, they're pretty stable for the most part. Yeah. So then it comes down to, you know, getting that arrow recipe just right. Yep. No, I think, I think
0: that, that
1: three blade is the way to
0: go after shooting several deer with different stuff. Definitely, I'm not going to go with the 175 grain like I was last year. That was an overkill. Way too much up front. I think my arrow was like 620
1: grains with that setup last year. The, it's the vented model, right, the 125 that you're going to be using? Yeah, the inch, with the inch and a quarter.
0: Because I, I did notice a big difference in, in reaction on deer when you shot them with the an inch and a quarter and inch and an eighth. You don't think it's that much, but it actually—it the hole difference is way bigger than you realize. It's like, wow, well, it's only a little bit bigger, but it actually makes a significantly larger hole.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's so a what blade do you, angle or what. What do you mean by the the reaction difference? Like they're they act like they're hit more.
0: Yeah, they—they're just like they don't want to go nowhere
1: when you hit them with. They're like, oh, like they don't like it. Like they
0: just kind of give up. Yeah, it seems like they it seems like just the bloodletting
1: is like that much more. Yeah. Well, I shot one deer with that, that wide cut iron will. Mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of the same deal there. But once again, it's like you build up cause that's like a more of a asymmetrical blade design where you got one big blade and then the bleeder. So mm-hmm. I, I feel like that design, if you have a really big, like Plane on that one blade, you're that much more likely to have like tuning issues versus like a three blade or like one of those little four blades that where all, all the blades are the same. Then mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of more consistent um, to where they're yeah. less they're less likely to catch the wind or you know you're torquing your bow a little bit. They're just more symmetrical around the shaft. Yeah, and that's what I felt
0: like I when I dropped a 125 on the 175 it like took away a lot of my tuning issues yeah it made it just made it easier it was like the, it, it was like that much weight up front was so critical on getting your boat tuned right and like that just means that if your boat comes out a tiny bit it's a lot more critical yeah you know but it's like i feel like it's just a little safer to run it
1: run it at less foc yeah, well I'm selling I'm probably gonna sell my Iron Wheel wide cut solids just because they're I like the extra cut that you get with because I mean, it's, it's over it's over well over two inches of cut, I think, between the two blades, but it's like there's been too many shots I've taken where if my shot execution wasn't perfect or a little bit of crosswind, you get that arrow wiggle a little bit and it's like, eh. It wouldn't do that with the, the normal sized one. Those mm-hmm. like those little I have those little bishop heads too for a while. Which are very similar to the VPA's, but they were non-vented, and they were you know pretty short. And I felt yep. like those always flew pretty well. The heads that have always flown really well for me are like the little slick tricks, which little four blades, yep. but they got the, the vents in them, and the head overall is really compact. Those things have always mm-hmm. flown really forgiving for me. Yeah, they don't even you don't even have to like tune your bow to make those shoes. right. They just got a really steep. They got a steeper blade angle. Is the only downside. Yeah, and it, it seems like
0: on uh, angled shots, I got a little bit more deflection on them. Like, it, they kind of want to kick the arrow around. Uh, I, I, I have seen, I've shot deer, like, with them, and, like, I swear I hit the rib on the one going in, and it, like, turned the arrow on an angle, and it came out, like, completely not where I expected
1: Interesting. You just kind
0: of. How did that happen? I, I think it
1: was just I was using the grizz tricks, which was like the the larger cutting one. Yeah, yeah. That's that's interesting because they're they're feral on those, like the hardened tip or whatever sticks out quite a, w- a ways in front of the blade, and you'd think mm-hmm. in theory that should help with your deflections because that point is able to like make a pilot hole like whatever angle, and then you know before the blades yeah. ever ever come into into contact, but maybe not. Yeah, it seems like anything
0: with a too much of a tip is kind of awkward sometimes. It, compared to like 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 a just like a clean through like a like the VPA, you know, where it's like it's like almost like a chisel tip but it's
1: sharp, you know, and it just clean yeah, flow yep. all the way. It's like that's the best. Or like so those you you've seen those Valkyrie heads where it's like a VPA <laughs> but just a really long uh point. Yeah. The only thing that concerns me at those is they almost look like they're too long and they might bend if like you, you hit something, something real if you hit something really hard they could bend i mean it, they're made out of I think s7 steel so they're mm-hmm. they're pretty tough my wife shoots them but I also bought her some iron wells that she can shoot next year they make that short jag and that I feel like is a pretty like solid because the tip is a lot more beefy on the short one mm-hmm and the thing's obviously smaller, but the the other issue with the with the Valkyrie is that it, even though it's obviously pretty sharp, the blades are still like that sixty degree angle, so that the hold an edge really well, but they're not like as razor sharp as you know a twenty degree bevel would be, and yeah, and they're they're not as big of an overall cutting diameter. You know, your VPA's are inch and a quarter, and I think the Valkyries are like one inch.
0: Yeah, and that's like. I I definitely feel like you gotta have you gotta have a little bit of a hole you know and it's just like if you shoot a two blade into a deer like even like the two blade mechanicals like they 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 clog up a lot easier than the three blade and that's I was like talking to the guy that uh, the tracking dog guy this year and he's like he's like they're they're blood trails have always been much better with the three blades and the two
1: blades. It seems like he's like the guts. Oh yeah. Kind of like, well, that makes sense. And, you know, what about like four blades though? Do you feel like they're similar? I would think that would be even better. Yeah. Although you know, I've, I've extra had, flaps. I've had issues with like, and maybe it's just an overall size thing, but when I shot the slick tricks, like, I don't know, it's probably been eight ten years. Um, but I probably shot five or six deer with them while I was, when I was shooting them. And on average, I had really poor blood trails, but I think a lot of that was also due to the fact that I was shooting the deer, like in the golden triangle. And so there's always mm-hmm. like a ton of connective tissue. Like the cavity was always filled with blood, just not a whole lot of it got on the ground. And maybe that's just cause it was a one inch cut. Yeah. When
0: you shot it with the grizz tricks with the inch and a half cut, those things were like, you got a lot of blood with those. Yeah. But they they were like, we were practically shooting with an open mechanical. <laughs> yeah, they're a good head.
1: I've been curious about the noise because like when when I shoot the vented iron roll, they definitely have a hiss compared to the solid ones. Do those vented VPAs have a little more hiss than the solid ones? They're not
0: as bad as like a Montec. Okay. But they're, they do have a little bit more. But at that at the ranges I'm shooting, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not shooting past like 30. But I, I I can tell you what, even at 30 yards this year, I learned a lot. Like you want to you don't want to shoot them at 30 if you don't have to. <laughs>
2: There's
0: so much that can go on with a white tail at those distances. It's like guys said, oh, I'm going to shoot 40 yards and stuff. I'm like, ooh, <laughs> ooh, I don't know. It's like. The reactions that those deer can make, like one one day it's fine, it won't make nothing, and the next it's like completely different.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, there's so much that can change once you get past like 25 yards. Just a little bit of movement is just could be so detrimental. You know, but that's like if I do have to shoot farther, I probably would still want to use those severs just for safety sake. I
1: just feel more comfortable. I think they're always going to go where I want them to go past, past yeah. like 30 yards. Yeah. And, and some guys will even, you know, mix their quivers, right. They'll have a, a couple fixed blades and a couple mechanicals. Yeah. Well, that's what I have now. I got, I got the severs on the one side of the quiver
0: and I got the, uh, the, the VPA is on the other side. Yeah. You know, if I'm, if I'm like in a situation where I'm going to be definitely shooting close, it's going to, I'll be putting on the, the VPA, you know, if it's real brushy or grassy or something, uh-huh. you know, cause I tell the sever is it, 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 I mean, if you hook some grass or something with it, it's going to open up.
1: Right. You know, but it's also less then, likely to touch the grass because you only got, you know, a, like a five eighth, you know, inch profile. It's basically like if your if your broadhead is going to hit it, then your your fletching certainly would hit it because your fletchings are a lot bigger than the broadhead at that point. Yeah, that's one thing. Like everybody's like, oh, was, like deflection with the
0: heavier arrows and stuff. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I I, I ripped. I, I was trying to, I I put one through a buck. I didn't hit so good the one year, and I was in cattails, and I mean, it didn't matter. <laughs> it wasn't going where it wanted to. Go <laughs> yeah, when it started.
1: yeah. You know. Guys are like, oh, I want to shoot a heavy, high up with arrow because I can shoot through brush. It's like it. It doesn't work like that.
0: No, yeah, it doesn't work that way. Even with a twelve gauge slug, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, there's there's some misconceptions on it,
1: but I think
0: I think I think I'm like probably right around twelve percent FOC right now.
1: I think I'm right around 16, yeah. or 16, 17-ish. Like, probably, probably 16, I guess, would be a safe estimate. It'd be higher if I didn't shoot lighted knocks, but I like the lighted knocks too much. And I'm only shooting a three-fletch, yeah. um, but I'm using that fletching jig to give it a left helical, which has been doing pretty well. Yeah, I switched
0: over to the left helical on my new batch of arrows, and I did notice it's a little,
1: it recovers a little,
0: it starts, starts spinning a lot quicker.
1: Yep. Oh, yeah, le- le- left helical, it's like a top right out of the bow, um, even with a big broad head on.
0: Yeah, so that's that's what I'm running now. And, I am I mean, I got a long arrow. I'm, my arrow is 29 and a half inches long. So, I got some length to my arrow. So, I, I just can't... I cannot get FOC if I wanted
2: it.
1: <laughs> that arrow's probably not... Uh, all that long in the context of most guys because a lot of guys will in the pro shop will cut their arrows like an inch longer you know inch past the riser so they might be a 20 28 inch draw but their arrows might be you know 30 inches
0: yeah oh i'm sitting like at my rest
1: yeah i'm the same way i'm like over my hand i think my arrows are like 27 and three quarters a 29 inch draw my wife's arrows are like they're like twenty three and a half and a carbon or something like that. Woo. She's got four hundred spine, and they're like at that length, they're they're like two hundred spine because they're they're so yeah. short That's and like stiff. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I, I'm sitting there.
0: I got my Apple arrow saw in front of me. I'm looking at the tape measure, and
2: I'm like, "Whoo!"
1: Yeah, with with her arrows and, and she was shooting VAPS. So imagine a four hundred spine VAP and how like small diameter that is, and how short that is. And then she had th- those Valkyrie heads in the front. It was like you could just about like toss an arrow with your hand and have it go through the deer. It'd that penetrates so fun. easy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: For for the shafts, of the I went from the the uh, Renegade to the Rampage, which is their one thousands tolerance. And I definitely I like those a lot better. They're a little I think they're like eleven eleven twenty five an hour or something. Which isn't crazy. hmm I think the gold tip the pro shafts on the gold tips are like fourteen, fifteen dollars an hour
1: right now, aren't they? Uh they might be. I I feel like that's a pretty st- standard range is like ten to fifteen with some of like the specialty shop arrows, like the Sirius being closer to twenty and then some with, like, the cheap stuff like Axis being, you know, 7 8 bucks if you buy them in bulk. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, you don't want to, I don't want to go too expensive
0: on my arrows.
1: Yeah, I kind of yeah. dialed that back down a little bit. The most expensive thing I'm shooting in my arrows right now is just the broadhead. But, like, the, the lighted knocks, I was using fire knock for a while, and now I've gone back to just the normal nocturnals, blazer veins, um, the shafts those rip TKOs, if you buy the elites, they're like 15 bucks an arrow. But if you buy the, you know, the sport, the, you know, 6,000 tolerance ones and then you just cut off the wobbly end, they're like 10 or 11 bucks. So they're not too bad. Um, but then the, the little collars, they're pretty expensive. Uh, just cause I've gotten the, like the hardened steel ones instead of just like the yeah. arrow shaft. But then That's for the like <laughs> yeah. But then for the, um,
0: Oh, your your
1: you're, you're the sleeves with carbon. I put the no, no. The, the sleeves are hardened steel. Actually, no, they're titanium. Oh. They're titanium, but they have the they have a lip. So it's mm-hmm. unlike the arrow shafter you just sleeving the outside. It's it's kind of like a you know you just slide it over and it stops because it's got that little lip yep. over the end. So you got that I guess separating the broadhead from the the actual carbon. Um, So I could probably get by with saving some money there if I actually use the arrow shafts more often. And then I was using like the iron will hidden inserts, but I've found that the brass hidden inserts, which are the same weight, 75 grains, like I got to hit something ridiculously hard in order to get either one of those to break. So it's like, I might as well save the brass ones cost like half as much.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, brass isn't bad. I, I actually, when I was running the gold tip arrows, I used the brass. Actually, on my trad bow, I still use it, the brass inserts. And I found the brass were much more durable than the aluminum because I was using the 100-grain brass and the 50-grain aluminums. Yeah. The aluminums would just kind of shear off sometimes.
1: Well, the brass was I mean, probably longer, comfy. too, I'd imagine. Actually. So the brass was shorter,
0: but it was like it would – it would tend to bend before it just snapped. Sure, uh, it would stay together. So it might not be perfectly straight after you hit something really hard or something, but it yep. seemed to stay up. Yeah, you know? but then that that little tiny half inch chunk of that aluminum arrow on those on those uh, black eagles is making a big difference
2: mm-hmm.
0: on the durability it's so so easy to do. I just do it on my arrow, so I just cut off little pieces
1: do you hot, hot and, melt them in place or you just epoxy them on
0: I just yeah I just put the uh epoxy on them just glue them in yep or I just I just use the 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 super glue for gluing in the insert, and I'll just use that sometimes. It seems to stay on,
1: yeah, I like using the the hot melt because then I can I can index my broadheads a little bit easier. So I can have them so where they're all I guess it doesn't matter as much with like a 3 blade but with like a, like an iron wheel style head that has the the big main blade mm-hmm. I'm able to hot melt those things in and turn them so that they're all like at the exact same angle you know relative to my riser so that they all react the same and then yeah. I just verify that they're all hitting the same at a distance um, and they all fit <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm putting them in And I'll like rotate them to the right spot And then I'll put them on the arrow spinner And make sure they spin well And if they don't, I'll just twist it a little bit You know, with the hot melt It makes it pretty, pretty easy to do that
0: Yep, and then I still have to go through everything And index, of course But it seems like the Indexing is less With the 1,000s tolerance Than it is with the yeah. 5,000s Yep Yep. So instead of pulling off like five inches at 40 yards or whatever it is, it's like three inches, you know, so it's just a little lot better. But every once in a while, you always get that one wonky arrow. and You're like, why? It's
2: like,
0: <laughs> what is, it's amazing how much they can deflect and completely be different. Which one, that was one thing that was concerning me when I, I, I bought a couple, uh, pre-fletched black Eagles for uh for my buddy that was who wanted arrows he just wanted pre-fletched but he wanted those the same arrows hmm. that the, the renegade they glue in the uh the knocks. I was like what they're they all glued in from, from the, factory. the factory so you got yeah. to cut
1: it from the front end and that's your only only option
0: yeah but they were already pre-fletched Hmm. so i was like well what do i do
1: yeah well, well
0: l- luckily like like they were they were shooting fine but like like i'm like man what if these things weren't indexed right but i, I don't know maybe they do index them because i didn't find any that were off when i went through his batch because i shot i shot a broadhead through everyone after that i'm like well, what is going on here and I think we had a mark, I had a mark like two of them where I had to put the the the, the cock bane on the opposite side. Yeah. Which, I mean, I still got on the shoot, but I was just kind of like, what the heck? Because I'm like, this is so critical sometimes, this is a stupid thing. I actually, I messaged Gold Tip, I'm like, or not Gold Tip, Black Eagle, I'm like, this is dumb, do not glue these things on. <laughs> <laughs> But the, the bear shafts are don't come like that, thank
1: God. That's pretty much all I buy at this point is just the, the bear shafts and then build them up. Unless you can get a, unless you get a heck of a deal on like a six-pack of, you know, fletched ones. I did that this year and, and then I had to peel all the veins off and I was like, oh, I got to deal with that and then they don't never come like super cleanly off and then you got to scrape them and soak them in acetone. It's like, it'd be better to just buy the shafts and not have to go through the hassle.
0: Yeah, and I, I think I'm, like, I'm done buying glue for for fletching from, like, bow manufacturer glue.
1: I'm just using that blue Loctite glue. <laughs> yeah, same here. Either the Loctite or the Gorilla Glue.
0: It's more, it seems like it's better. Because I keep, I, I bought a couple, I bought the one gold tip glue, I bought the, the tip grip, uh-huh. And the, the stuff wasn't sticking. I couldn't get the stick. I'm like, this has always worked fine. I've never had an issue with it. And all of a sudden now, like the last two bottles I bought, the stuff won't stick.
2: Hmm.
0: I was like, what? what is wrong with the glue? I'm like, I didn't change my, I didn't change anything else because I always just use uh, denatured alcohol to clean the carbon. Yep. You know, so I was like, there's no difference there. Like why? Why is it all of a sudden not sticking? I'm like, this isn't good. Because I, I I built a whole dozen arrows last year and all my veins were peeling off. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I all done building them. so like come down like two days later and the veins peel right off. Huh? I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. I I changed over. I bought a different bottle of glue real fast and I was like, it was fixed. I was like, what the heck? Yeah, because I'm running those long ones right now. I think they're, what are they, four and a half? Oh, yeah, yeah. Bronco veins, what are they? Uh, four inch. I'm running four inch Bronco veins, which are 12.5 grains each.
2: <laughs>
0: so there's they got some weight to them.
1: Yeah no kidding I, If I you like switch to Blazers you'd cut half the weight off the back end of your arrow And your FOC probably jumped to 14% Yeah
0: I just like because I can see them so good Yeah
1: Yeah especially with the helical Yeah, so, yeah you find you can find them Although if you get that, that Arizona easy fletch jig You can take a short vein and put so much helical on That it's pretty much like looking at a solid profile From the back Like the one vein almost overlaps The next one
0: yeah, well, that's why I have. Uh, I have the uh, was it the Jojan? Uh huh. I have that because that that was that's my left helical clamp is a Jojan because I use that for my uh, for my uh, feathers when I'm doing my trad bow stuff, and that's the left helical with the it's got the six six port thing. Yep. So I could build a ton of arrows really fast with that. But that their their clamps are
1: very twisted. Yeah, I'll have to check that one so, out. I just ordered one of the the easy fletch ones, but I haven't get, taken it out of the box yet. Yeah. the only the only issue with the Jojen is they're so twisted; they're almost hard to make them stick right.
0: You almost it's really hard to get it aligned. Yeah. You also you feel like you feel like you put it put a vein on it. and It wants to like peel off halfway down. Doesn't so want. Get the suction right, so you kind of they're a little, it's a little finicky to get to get used to it. So you like the first couple arrows you do with it, you're like, "What? Well, this is bad!" And you get like a gap; mm-hmm. it never
1: stuck square. So. one thing I've been thinking about trying is, and I've always used white veins, just like all white. But I've been thinking about it, and it's like white stuff. And granted, I don't really hunt with my quiver on my bow too much, but, like, when you're moving your bow, like, having white veins there, especially if you're on the ground, like, that stands out more than if you had, like, a more neutral color. Yeah.
0: Well, that's why deer have a white tail.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And and I was listening to, uh, what's his name? Um, Bobby Worthington did a podcast with the Southern Ground Guys. I don't know if you listened to that that one or not, the, the more recent one he did. And he was talking about how like he hates wearing like light colored stuff and he'll even wear like dark brown or black gloves um, because his hands are moving and he feels like the darker colors are less likely to get, you know, picked up. Yep. And I was like, I wonder if, you know, switching to a more medium toned vein, whether it was like an orange or, you know, something like that might not be a bad option because I'm using light lighted knocks. So it's yeah. not like finding my arrows usually that hard. That's
0: actually why I'm using the red.
1: Oh red, yeah, red that's like a that, yeah. red. That's not a bad idea. Yeah. Because red red will stand out like to it, our eye but not to a deer's eye. It'll just look like, you know, indistinguishable from like tan or brown. Yeah. It, if I if I have a arrow laying on the ground, I usually could find the red pretty quickly. Yeah. And I mean you could make the argument that like, oh, it's harder to see you know red blood on a red vein, but it's like on on most arrows that you pick up you're looking and you're seeing the blood on the arrow shaft itself as much as the veins and you can always just wipe it off on your finger and, and be able to tell there's blood on the vein. Yeah. You can, you can still tell it's covered in blood. Yep. Yeah. And I don't know if a deer can see it too, but especially if you got the, the veins with the strong helical to where, you know, you have a, you can see it from the back, then obviously, like from the front, like you can see the same. I don't know if deer can pick up on that visual aspect of the arrow coming at them, or if it's all just sound bass that makes them jump the string. But it can't hurt. Yeah. Well, their
0: eyes are incredibly good at picking up movement, so they might be able to physically see that arrow coming. You never know. Yeah. Yep. It's a good question. Maybe they they can. They're
1: like pulling the matrix, watching that arrow coming in. Well, you see some guys who comment on like videos or whatnot, and they're convinced that the deer can see the arrow coming and that's what makes them jump the string. It's like, ah, I don't know. I feel like the sound is a pretty big factor there, but especially yeah, when you see I guys, did... when you see guys shoot ultra long range, like you got to take a shot at a deer at like 80 yards or something, they almost never react to the sound of the bow, but they always like drop when the arrow is like, you know, just about getting there. And it's almost like they react like way less at longer ranges. Than they do at shorter ranges. Mm-hmm. So it's like you would think if they're seeing the arrow coming they would react much quicker, but I guess an arrow vein at eighty yards is like almost ang- indistinguishably small. Yeah, that arrow is so so to sleep at that point. There's no yaw
0: to it or anything, it's gonna it just spinning like a drill bit at that point. Yeah.
1: So I think they'll they'll hear it whistling coming through the air a little bit. Yeah, that's kind of why I like the the solid, the solid uh, broadheads. Although the, yeah. the veins are like the blazer veins have a little hiss to them. Yeah,
0: I do. I like the solid, the solid myself.
1: It's just I
0: can't get 125 grain in that cutting diameter. Yeah. Without vents.
1: Well, the other kind of have to You get... you can probably get it in other brands. Maybe I guess I don't know. I don't know if there's other brands that make a one yeah. and a quarter inch cut like that in the three blade. I I haven't found one yet. I think that's the
0: biggest you can get. Everybody wants to make these small cutting diameters because they're penetration.
1: More efficient.
0: Yeah. I'm like, I got plenty of penetration. No issue with that.
1: Well, the, the one thing that, um, you know, from a sound standpoint, the, Solid broadheads are obviously quiet, but some of those mechanicals are pretty silent too. You know, maybe not all of them, but like the severs are as quiet as anything. You know, they sound just like a field point flying through the air and you can run a smaller vein on those too. So it was like, if you were, if you were not running fixed blades and you just had to steer that mechanical, you could get by with like a boning heat vein, something lower profile that, that actually is like noticeably quieter and that'd be a pretty Mm -hmm. good system. But then you're You're kind of locked into that Because you wouldn't want to necessarily shoot fixed blades With that same vein profile Yeah
0: Yeah I just I've always liked the, the Bronco veins I don't know why I've always been a fan of them They're just They're a very quiet vein And there's It's like excessive stability Right So I think it helps If you do make a Stupid mistake on your form or something. I think it does kind of correct some of it.
1: Probably the only thing where it hurts you is in a, you know, decently strong crosswind. They probably kick out a little more than a shorter vein would. Yeah, but at the same point, my arrow is so heavy. It's like and it's pretty evenly weight. Like it's a high FOC arrow would probably be impacted more. But at twelve percent, your your arrow is probably getting you know pushed relatively evenly as opposed to the tail end kicking out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and once you get that rotation going, the wind isn't as 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 major.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So because that does that does cut down on wind drift. Just the rotation of your arrow spinning really good. Yep. A little extra stability. <laughs> but yeah, I think they're pretty. I'm pretty happy with the arrow build now. It's not bad at all. And then from from what I found, I'm like. 540 grains right now At 65 pounds And with that inch and a quarter Three blade it goes through everything No problem So I think that's about the right weight For
1: a deer It
0: breaks bone it breaks everything
1: I was trying to think back To the last time that I had a deer that I shot that I didn't get A full pass through on And I I couldn't think of one. The only time where I can remember it happening is on a deer that I like hit too low where it wouldn't have mattered anyway. I hit it in the humerus and that arrow Mm -hmm. didn't get a pass through. But like it would have been, wouldn't have helped anyway because it was out of tree stands. The shot was just too low. But most of the other deer that I've shot, even when I was shooting lighter arrows and even when I was shooting mechanicals, like they would still pass through. They might just dribble out and just kind of like lay on the grass on the other side. But now mm-hmm. when I'm shooting, you know, a little heavier arrow and, you know, cut on contact head, it's like, I got half the arrow sticking in the dirt a lot of yeah, times. Or all. Yeah. <laughs> like you shoot it to the soft ground <laughs> he- or like a swamp or something. Uh-huh. It's like bye bye arrow. <laughs> yeah. And
0: he's like, okay, I'll come back here with a metal detector in January and that's that's a problem though. If you got expensive arrows, you can't keep losing them.
1: Right, but but on those, you know, on those occasional that hypothetical scenario where you maybe you're ground hunting and that buck comes in, and he's twelve yards, and he you draw back, and he turns toward you and looks, and he smells it, and he's getting ready to bolt, and it's like, well, I'm gonna put it right on the shoulder. You know, then at that point in time, I don't want that mechanical on the front. Yeah, but if you got a.
0: Uh, Got to cut on contact. That thing's gonna rip right through them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? that's what I like those those three blades. They're just they're just an all around good performing broadhead. That's what I always felt like. But that's what, even the Montex. I've always had great blood trails of Montex. Also, you know, because it it is it is critical to have blood. Yeah. People are like, oh, it doesn't kill the deer, but it's like, yeah, but it helps you find it. And sometimes they go in places it's very hard to find.
1: Yeah. Or some of the people they are like, you know, just kind of perpetuate the saying like, oh, you don't need to, you don't need a blood trail when they die within 40 yards. It's like, well, okay, you can't guarantee they're going to die in 40 yards. I've had deer that I've just, just absolutely, you know, top of the heart, you know, both lungs shot and they've taken off like a bat out of hell and gone 200 yards down a you know down a steep drainage and it's like okay if there's no if there's no blood that turns that turns uh that turns a 20 minute track job into like 3 hours look look at that big buck I shot last year I punched him through
0: the front of the rib cage like forward but still in in the like through through both shoulders all, all through the, all the, the the arteries and stuff going out of the heart. Yep. All that, all that good. The front of the lungs. That deer went five hundred yards. <laughs> like, how does that even happen?
1: But you <laughs> but did, he went. That you had pretty far. good blood with that that hit, though, right?
0: Had tremendous blood.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He still hit five
0: hundred yards though. If you like, hit
1: him in front of the shoulder, I feel like the blood trail is always like pretty good. Like there's just yeah, no there's I not enough tissue to plug the hole in front of the shoulder it
2: was
0: the blood was coming out and pouring down his front legs yep. and every step every track was like like a saucer cup of blood yep in the tr- and that that I, I couldn't believe how far that deer went though,
1: yeah, but it's like imagine shooting a deer on the like for you, you know the edge of a a laurel thicket and he goes 120 yards in that and there's not any blood. It's like yeah. it's gonna be a long night. <laughs> that's what happened with that deer. It took me three days to find him because he went into a into a laurel thicket
0: slash rhododendron swamp, and that stuff. It took me three days to find that deer. It was like I'm like I hit him good, <laughs> I just couldn't find him, you know? And that's why I, I hit that buck this year. That I had I called the dog on it right away. I just I'm like I'm just gonna get the dog. I'm not even going to mess around with this because I took me so long to find that deer. I didn't get any good meat out of
1: it. Right. Yeah. I'm the the same way now. If I, if I get a gut shot on a deer, it's like, that's not obviously the preference, but if I get it, I'm calling the dog right away. I'm not even going to attempt to track it. If I know that that's what the hit was, that deer might be, might be 40 yards, but it's, you know, not worth, you could get bumped by coyote, you know,
0: and that that guy that, that that came for me,
1: I actually I called my buddy who's the
0: game warden around here, and the game wardens use that dog if they got to find a deer. Oh yeah, and that dog is a little wiener dog, <laughs> little little, little dock sound. It's an Incredible animal. i and that that guy he he's he's a pretty cool dude. He tracks so many deer every year; it's ridiculous. Because in New Jersey, there's a ton of freaking deer getting shot. You know they're all he's tracking two or three deer a day sometimes
1: yeah and and, uh the places where i'm at minnesota and wisconsin they got facebook pages where they have like i guess a like all the the guys numbers like all the trackers in the region and they're like listed there so if people need a a blood dog, they can like pull up that list on the Facebook page and just dial whoever's like the closest guy to them. And if he's you know busy taking tracks or whatnot, they can just go down the list. But yeah, during like November, they're pretty much working nonstop.
0: Yeah, it's cool to see all. The, he he has his Facebook page and he has all the recoveries and stuff. It's cool to see how many deer he's finding. Yep. Like, it's also kind of like kinda of saddening to see how many people wound stuff. It's like, oh my God. Right. You met a deer that get that get shot every year that I'm like, man, that is bad. I'm like that doesn't look good. But I guess that's part of it, but it's like, man. Seems like a lot.
1: Yeah, it'd be interesting to know like what the you know the counter number is. It's like we can only see one we can only see the number of times the dog gets called but we don't know you know, what the number is of guys who just, you know, drilled their deer and had a good shot. Yeah, it's always, I'm always interested in that. You know, because that that tells you a lot about setups and stuff like that, too. Yeah. Well, Shane Shane Simpson has this, he's got two dogs now. He's got Callie, who's been, you know, the hound who's been working for the last several years. And then he got a new one and he's like, He's like, even if you know you get a perfect shot and you don't see that deer go down, he's like, just give me a call and I'll come bring the new one out and like do a training track, basically. Mhm. Um, so I was gonna call him last night when I shot that doe, and I was like, well, the the deer only ran like twenty yards, so it wouldn't be much of a track. So it's like we'll find a different one for a trainer. Yeah. This guy's this
0: guy's all into it. I think he's the one that does the testing for the make sure dogs are qualified. Oh, nice. Or whatever. Yeah. So he, he does a lot of it.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure if, if, you know, it seems like some areas, some places, some states, like I don't know if there's, I don't think there's like a certification that I've seen that you can get, but from my observations, there's some guys who basically do it like full time. Like it's their thing. Like in the fall, they they maybe do a little bit of hunting themselves, but then they're primarily, you know, their, their enjoyment is coming out of like helping find other people's deer with their dog. And they put a lot into it, but then you have like other people who, it seems like they get on, like they still get listed on those repositories where people can call, but it's like, maybe they have a dog that's, that's like not even really a blood tracking breed and they haven't really been trained very well for it, but they maybe have taken them on like one or two tracks and maybe it's like a puppy or something. But they'll still like yeah. they put their name in because they want to help. And then I know a couple of guys this year that it's like they call the dog and they just get the impression that like the dog they couldn't even they didn't have confidence that the dog was even on like the track. Um mm-hmm. and so it's like hopefully you get the guy who you know, is really into it and the dog is really into it and a lot of, a lot of experience, and a lot of tracks. Yeah. And that's what this guy I'm using is
0: now. I'm like, I'm not going to use anybody else. Like his dogs are like, they're nuts. They're nut jobs that they do some crazy recoveries. Mm-hmm. That buckeye, the buckeye I had, it, I had a, had the uh, dog come in for when three quarters of a mile, and that dog, that dog had no problem figuring it out. And that dog, that buck bedded like five or six times. And every time it went to bed, it would, it would J hook into its backtrack and then bed and stuff. It was doing all sorts of stuff to like instinctually throw off a predator. Yeah. That's and finally pretty cool. that dog, it was, it was, it was crazy to watch that dog like go and like e- even the uh the 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 handler is like no don't go that way it's like yelling at the dog and he's like he's like all right fine and he lets the dog go that way and the dog sure enough like like yep it's over here buddy it's like but crazy little dog and that those wiener dogs are just they got some they got some skills you know they're they're nuts but they're small so you can hold on to them but they're, they're just all 100 miles an hour i was like i've never seen such a because my mom had them growing up, but they were like pets, you know. So it's like you never realize how intense those dogs could be. But it was really cool watching those things work, and it, they're very intelligent, very good at figuring stuff out, you know. And they fit through everything. So what he has a he has like a he has like that super slick uh, cordage, like what was like like zing it kind of cordage. Yep. You know what I mean? And he's got like super slick stuff like that. And he's got this like 30 foot lead of orange zing it and it's tied on the dog. And that dog just goes and we've got that, that cord and you just basically just chase the cord around because it uh, otherwise the dog gets so tangled up because it's a little tiny wiener dog. So, I mean, he's just bobbing and weaving and going through bushes and like you can't, you couldn't follow him. So he just kind of had to, like, drop the cord and jump around the bush and pick it back up. Uh, very good dog. It, I think in New Jersey, they have to, like, pass a test every year, too. They have to they have to go through testing. I, think that's, I, I was talking to the guy a little bit on it. I think that's what he said. He's part of the United Blood Trackers, but the dog has to pass a certain qualification in order to even track
1: in New Jersey. I think that's how it works. Huh? That that could be. I'm pretty sure out here there's not a requirement to, uh, like any dog could track, but there might be, Mm -hmm. there might be like, you know, a set of tests that you would need to go through to get like certified by the, you know, United blood trackers. Maybe that's, maybe that's kind of what he's, Maybe that's the difference. Maybe yeah. if you call somebody on yeah, that, that list, you're getting a dog who's vetted.
2: Yeah, if they're
0: on the United Blood Trackers, they have. I think they have to pass a certain qualification. I think, I think that's what it is. But his his dogs are all they all came from Germany. He he imported his his blood tracking dogs. And they're like "cause in Europe you can't even you can't even go hunting in Europe without a licensed blood tracker
1: huh you
0: like you can't like in in Germany, if you want to go hunting, you have to have a blood tracking dog on hand to even have a hunting license
1: interesting, I guess that makes sense. I mean a lot of the rules out there do seem to be pretty pretty strict yeah I remember when I was yeah, out there it seemed like a lot of guys didn't even like bow hunt. Because they're like, well, why would you hunt with a bow? Cause you can like kill them right in the spot with a rifle. And they were all like, you know, there were, it seemed like there was like, obviously not very many hunters, but the ones that did hunt, they like, had their stuff together. And yeah, it was like, if they're taking a shot, it's like guaranteed dead. Like they're, they're aiming, like yeah. they're aiming in the spot where that animal's going to drop right on the site.
0: Well, they have to pass a a shooting qualification every single year to even get a hunting license in some of those European places.
1: Yeah, makes sense.
0: So it's like every year you have to hit like a a six-inch target moving at a certain speed or something.
1: Huh. Yeah, I'm sure if we had to do that in the States, there'd be a lot less wounded deer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because
0: how many people just don't even know that their broadheads don't shoot the same places their field points.
1: Well, that's part of the problem too. The places that do have proficiency tests, they'll have you shoot it like a target with field points, so you can easily pass a proficiency test and not even know that your bow's out of tune. All the ones, all the ones I've done have been like indoors, where they're just at some mm-hmm. little local archery range, and they give you a target, and it's like, okay, put five arrows in a six-inch circle at twenty yards. It's like okay, I can do that with my eyes closed. It's so funny though. Like, I could take my old
0: Hoyt. I got the uh, what the heck is that? The Hoyt Stratus, which is like a binary cam bow from like '96.
1: Uh huh. Right. Yep.
0: That bow tunes a broadhead so much easier. (laughs) It's like so less critical.
1: Yeah, I believe it. I remember I had a Hoyt Protech. It was like a thirty-eight inch axle the axle, and like an eight-inch brace height. And then I was like super into the limb saver stuff back in the day, so I had like all like every limb saver th- thing possible. So it weighed like eight pounds. So it was like mm-hmm. a bow that big that weighed that heavy. It was so forgiving.
0: Yeah, and it's just I think it was slow too, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yep, yep.
0: The arrow speed—that's I think too like. I, I need to have my my poundage drop down. Like, I think if I go over 270, I have issues.
1: Yeah, I I'd say for the for me, I'm shooting 283. I think 280, 283 somewhere in there right now. And on the smaller broadheads, it's still fine, and the mechanicals are still fine. But like those bigger broadheads, I don't know yeah. if it's necessarily speed related. But like I said, there's some shots where it's like uh I must not have, yeah. you know, executed the the shot super cleanly, and the arrow will wiggle a little bit, or I might hit mm-hmm. off like three inches at forty yards. But I know that that same shot would have like hit right behind the pin with a mechanical. So it's like I know that either fletching or speed is like right on the edge for those bigger fixed heads with my setup currently. Yeah, yeah and almost, you almost,
0: know, you—it's like you're better off having a little bit slower.
1: Yeah, but one thing I was thinking about too is. When you drop the poundage, you're you're kind of changing a lot. Like you're you're changing your speed, right? But you're potentially changing your tiller if you don't back your limb bolts out exactly the same top and bottom. But then also mm-hmm. like your holding weight's changing. And I was like, I wonder oh. if I wonder if you know because like Matthews, you got the switch weights. So you just instead of backing your your bolts out, you have the option to put in different mods, and the different mods come in different like let off percentages. So it's like if uh-huh. I'm shooting the seventy five pound mods with eighty five percent let off right now, then maybe instead of backing my limb bolts out, I just switch to like sixty five pound mods at like seventy five percent let off and then it's easier to get the bow back to full draw, but then once I'm there, I have the you know same familiar holding weight that I've had the rest of the season, yeah, and that's
0: i I run my bowtech or not my bowtech my uh my elite 'cause i have i got I have the adjustable let off on that. Stuff and I actually run it on the lighter I, instead of ninety. I run it on the other one, and what what I reason I do that is it's I'm more in the back wall. Mm-hmm. It makes me kind of it makes you it kind of forces you to hold the bow back. Yep, because if you can kind of creep up on the bow, you can shoot high, and that happens very, very easily shooting on an angle. You can creep, you know, so. It, I like to have it, so I'm yanking that thing tight. Because if you if you take and creep up on your bow and throw a tune, if you creep up with a field point, you can shoot four inches high at twenty yards. So imagine what that does with a fixed blade broadhead.
1: Right. Yep.
0: Yeah. That's kind of why, like. I think they they want you to run max draw a lot of times. It's because your cable tension, you get that stretch, that kind of you can do that with the stretch.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure that matter or that makes a difference too when you got uh, whether you got limb stops or you got a cable stop bow, or just the overall system. I bet some of them are probably less susceptible to creep than others, but mm-hmm. yeah. that's a, that's why like the limb stops because I can
2: you
0: know you pull it back you know when you're there
1: the other thing too is yeah. i mean if you got the higher or the lower let off and like it's forcing you to pull it like actively engage, because otherwise it'll pull you off the back wall i feel like that like just helps with my alignment better whereas if i'm mm-hmm. shooting a super high let off bow sometimes i'll get a little you know a little you know, relaxed a little on the back wall and then my, my elbow's not fully in line with the arrow anymore and that'll cause my shot to to go off yeah
0: yeah, but that's why I'm I'm, I, I'm completely gone from the index. I'm not even touching that thing no more. And I'm just shooting that, that hex release.
2: Because
0: mm-hmm. I, I used that for a while, then I went back to the index. I'm like, I'm going to just keep shooting the hinge. I shoot that much better. Because it's, it's not like a, it's like an index release that operates as a hinge. You know, because it doesn't have the thumb portion on it, and it has a wrist strap.
1: It's, it's, uh, Scott makes it. So you actually, um, it it rotates to fire just like every other hinge. Yep. Yeah. It rotates like a, like a regular Scott Longhorn. Yep. Hinge it
0: has the same mechanical action as a Scott Longhorn, except it has a wrist strap on it and no thumb. It just has the two finger parts. So you basically, you, you hold it like index, but instead of having this hair trigger like an index you have to physically work around through the moon to engage it you know and what I do I just have it I have it ran really short so it doesn't travel very far at all but it still makes me have to follow through a back tension every time I shoot yeah it kind of it kind of puts my head in the game accuracy and I I found when I shoot that like because I use it for uh, shooting Shooting target too, and I just I found it just I can shoot way better groups with that. Yeah, that makes sense. But in return, it makes me shoot a fixed blade broadhead much better. It just it makes me makes me really consistently break my releases. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it kind of in, it puts you back into like focusing on your shot cycle. You right. can't just like go straight to autopilot
1: when you're shooting at a deer. You have to physically.
0: Think go about the,
1: pre- yep, yep breaking. Yeah, I went. You know? I went. I started the season off with the index, and I, I feel like I shoot the index pretty well generally. Uh, you know, as long as I'm doing my part. But the thing I continually would do, and it always bugged me a little bit, is when you know I'd wear the release going into the woods, and I'd hang my stuff, and invariably I'd always like nick the release against some metal thing as I'm setting up, whether it was a climbing stick or binoculars or whatever it was. And I just hated constantly doing that to where I started taking the thing off and put it in my pocket and then I'd put it back on. And it's like, well, if I'm going through all this work, why not just go back to the thumb release? So that's what I did. And I, I got a new uh, hinge too. So I'm, I'm shooting blank bail shots in my garage. Like, you know, every few days with the hinge and then like everything sighted in for the the thumb release, and I execute them similarly. hmm
0: But I, I always have the the, I use that the core guide jacket,
1: uh-huh, which
0: has that really like elasticy cuff on it. Yep. On the sleeve stuff. So what I do is I always take my 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 release on my wrist, and I stuff it down in there, and then pull my sleeve over it. Mm. So it's, it's contained in there when I'm climbing. Yep. And then I can then I can fiddle I can fiddle with that. But if I'm using my jacket with the tighter sleeves, which is more like the puppy jacket sleeve, then I have to take it off and stuff it in my pocket when I'm climbing a tree. Yeah. But tell you what, I've been using the Woodbury again, and I like that jacket much better.
1: Have you tried the Solitude for comparison?
0: Yeah, I was. I was. That's what I was wearing last year. I was using that, and they're both. Both of them are windproof, but the Woodbury is definitely noticeably warmer in the wind than the Solitude. And the
2: sleeves
0: on the Woodbury had that that slippery like nylon inside the sleeve mm-hmm. instead of like that. I don't know what that is like fake fleece crap or whatever they use. Yeah, yeah. And that slipperiness inside the sleeve is so much nicer for not being bound up when you're wearing layers and stuff. Oh yeah, for sure. Way less restriction. I'm like, why do they not have that in the new jacket? I'm like, it's so much better. And then the that that it's almost like spandex on the uh the wood berries, the outer material and I'm like, that is so much quieter when it's really cold out that material.
1: Yeah, I liked the the woodberry overall. The biggest thing for me just was the, the windproofness, you know. I just got cold. There's times I'd be sitting up in like rifle season on the edge of a cattail swamp with the wind in my face and you sit there for ten hours straight when it's eighteen degrees and you got a fifteen mile an hour wind and it just gets so brutally yeah. cold by the time I I'd go to climb down like I would I'd be so cold my, my core temp had dropped so much that like I'd need to before even like starting to walk back to the truck I'd need to do like jumping jacks for a little mm-hmm. bit like squats and stuff and then I wouldn't even like undress like I would just wear full, like my full gear and just like start walking just to warm back up again
0: yeah and that's a for me my temperatures aren't as cold as where you are so I'm not yeah I'm I'm more on average 30s 27 25 when it's really cold for the most part so it's like that the is fine for that for me and if i get like a really windy day i just been taking that uh that uh that huntworth yep. that windbreak i've been using that as like a windbreaker as a shell and i just slide it right over to woodbury and that's really been working nice because it actually has like the, the collar on the Huntworth is a little tighter
1: uh-huh.
0: than the collar. So, like, and it goes up higher than the Woodbury. So, if I take the hood off on the Woodbury, I could pull that Windbreaker over the top and it kind of like sits up over it and it like makes like a tight gasket around my neck where the uh, collar zips up. And it's like it's just large enough that it fits right over the outside of the uh, the Woodbury without any binding.
1: <laughs> nice.
0: It makes a nice windbreaker. It's it's like a good
1: shell. Yeah, I've been doing that kind of this year with with my. Uh, I'm actually going to sell my Huntworth one just because I, I got too much stuff in my closet. But a, a similar one that has less insulation is like the the Wind Brace jacket from Scentlock. Mm-hmm. I've been using that this year in kind of a similar type fashion where you could you know throw something on underneath and then just put that as like a shell jacket over the top to cut the wind and it has been doing you know pretty good job for that but there's not really any insulation to it it's just a like a brushed fleece exterior and a brushed fleece interior and it's got like a you know polyurethane Mm -hmm. laminate sandwiched in between but and it's got enough space in it where you can layer underneath and it doesn't bind up too bad But I do agree. I like the little slip. I like that slippery, you know, surface finish on the inside, or it's like a sleeping bag kind of, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah. They all jackets should have that.
1: It's just should just come with it. (laughs) I don't know why they don't, because like you said, they got the little like that grabby, like fleecy, you -hmm. know, finish. And it's like why? It's like yeah. That's why I like the puffy jacket over the.
0: Everything too. I enjoy the puppy jacket because it's just a slippery,
1: you know? Yeah. The incinerator from Sitka is, is a really good, like, all around. Like it's, it's ultra expensive, but it's got that nice slippery finish. It's like a sleeping bag on the inside, and then you got that Gore Tex laminate and then a brushed polyester on the outside. It doesn't bind up at all when you draw back. But. It's probably not. It's not as quiet. It's not as quiet as like a woodberry.
0: But if you gotta wear it when you're climbing the tree, it's so much easier to climb the tree with the slippery sleeves.
1: You just have more mobility. Yeah, yeah. With your knees too and your hips. You know, you're Mm -hmm. you're lifting your knee up, and then if you got your pants are binding, then you can't lift your leg as easy. Yeah, and you're just like, oh, you don't even want to like climb the tree because you're like, you don't feel like extra crap like this is going to be a pain in the butt especially if you got if you use like you know three-step eighters to get up in your tree and you're like why did i do this next year i'm buying more sticks
2: yeah
0: i was thinking about trying that that Coonhertz ambush yeah saddle. i was looking at that i'm like man that's really slick I'm like that is nice like i'm like i make my own and mine mine works
1: great but i'm like man that is really nice looking I, I used to have the, I had the original version of the, but when it, back when it was Lone Wolf, the assassin yeah, the platform. Attack. Yeah. I had one. Yeah. I actually still have one. I sold, I think I sold one of them, but I still have one. I had two, or my dad and I both had one. But now I just use the, now I just use the, the Predators cause I got, I can pretty much get it, any of those I want. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And they got the larger one. I was looking at that. My buddy bought one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the XL is, is really just an upsized version of the the standard and the mm-hmm. standard weighs like three pounds and the XL weighs four, but they're, they're both designed so that cause like you remember on the lone wolf assassin, the original one, it was so tall where like the leveling bolt was that you couldn't really like carry it without a backpack. Cause that leveling bolt piece would like dig into your back. So mm-hmm. I think the they fixed that with the the ambush but like the yeah the, now it's, yeah it's flat flat but then like the the xl predator is the same way mm-hmm. where it's just flat and then you got the just like the tapered tapered thickness
0: i like to do it that way with this
1: i just run the uh run the sticks right on the platform
0: and just wear that in mm-hmm. instead of having like a a backpack to put everything in
1: yeah well, they make a then, a pouch for it too, where it's just like a mm-hmm. Cordura pouch that has a whole bunch of molly webbing on the back. And you just drop the platform, and then you can, you know, use the molly to attach your sticks or whatever else you want to on the back of the pack. Yeah. The only other thing too is you run in with that knee brace. You know, I don't have the knee brace on him. Mm, yeah. And I'm like, oh man,
0: it's like it's so hard to not have that once you have it.
1: Well, you know what What I found is a good alternative to that? Um, that I've been playing around with it quite a bit this year. Because there'd be times where you get those just awkward trees and it's like, man, you know, I need better knee protection than just the knee pads or it's a small trunk tree and your knees mm-hmm. slide off the edge. Uh, and I had built a little knee pad, um, like a knee bar that I could strap to the tree. But then I also realized that if I take a a strap with an over center buckle and just have like two steps, like those Amer steps one on either side Mm -hmm. and I can just strap that to the tree above my platform. And then for me, that does a really good job of like different solution to the same problem where I can just go ahead and put my feet up on the side of the tree and I can kind of straddle the tree more or less. And then my knees aren't even really digging into the tree to begin with. But then also I have the ability to leverage off those things to get around the backside of the tree more. Mm. And if it's a leaning tree, then what I can do, like if it's leaning forward, I can take those steps and I can mount them, you know, on the sides, but then like also higher up a little bit. And then I can stand on my platform, but then if I want to like be more comfortable and just like sit down for a little bit, I can basically put my feet up on those steps and then almost sit down onto the trunk. And then like your whole backside, like the backside of your thighs and your butt are sitting against the trunk of the tree and you're leaning back into your backband. And you got your feet mm-hmm. kicked up on those steps, and it's like, man, you can fall asleep like that. it's so comfortable and then if a deer comes in, you can still shoot out of that position if it's on your strong side, it's on the weak side, you gotta step back on your platform.
0: yeah, that's not too bad i'm always i'm like thinking I'm always thinking about like something different, and then I just kind of go back to the original. <laughs> <laughs> Cause like I, I went on the, I was using the tree stand for a while this year. I hunted the beginning of the year with the tree stand again. And then I'm like, man, I'm like, this is so nice and comfortable to just sit on a seat in a tree stand and relax and stuff. But then like I get into some situations where I'm just like, man, it'd just be nice to have a saddle and I could just swing around the tree instead of having to Right. Like, kind of limited. Like once you're in a tree stand, if you got like a limmy tree to get like around a, a limb or something to shoot where if i was in the saddle i could just push out real hard and get around the limb and make
1: make a shot it's almost like if you if you had the ability to pre-scout everything you could take notes on your app and be like okay this tree is a ring of steps tree this tree is a platform tree this you know you can you can this is a ground setup and you could have that all kind of pre-planned but even then it's still like pretty hard unless you know exactly where you're gonna go on a given day. And if you're going in mobile and doing what you're doing, then it's like almost impossible to know like what situation you're gonna run into that day.
2: Yeah,
0: and yeah, once you get in the woods, the whole plan goes out the window half the time.
1: Yeah. So it's
0: like it's like, oh man, like what well, that's not gonna work now. And then, yeah. then you just end up having no options. Yeah. Just picking
1: a first one. It it seemed like the most the most versatile like overall system for me, which isn't necessarily the lightest, but the most versatile would be like a predator XL and like two steps on a, on a strap. There's yep. like almost any scenario that I could get into. Like if, if I had to sit in like a, you know, like a spruce tree or, you know, Tamarack or something where there's limbs everywhere and there's no way I can walk around the backside of the tree. Well, I got that big platform. I can just like rotate in place as if it was a mini tree stand. But then you got like a leaning tree. It's like, okay, I can kick those you know steps up on the backside. Or if I'm hunting like a giant tree where the straps barely fit around, then I can use those steps or even the top of my climbing stick to like basically walk around the tree as if I had a ring of steps. So it was like basically yep. any scenario I ran into, like even though I was carrying a little bit more weight, the versatility allowed me to set up and not feel like I was at a disadvantage.
0: Yeah, and that's why I, I run that, that saddle system I have. You know, with that bigger platform and stuff.
2: Because
0: I could, the way, it, the, the size of that platform, I could just, like, when I stand on the edge of that thing, if it's a wider tree, like, I could just, still I'm still pushing out farther than normal. Yeah. It's like an it's like extra foot and a half to my legs. You know, because I made it really wide. Yep. You know, I actually kind of, I actually, it's probably pretty close to the old assassin platform. I think it's probably, ooh, I bet it's, I bet it's 17 inches wide, the uh, the platform I'm using. Uh-huh. You know, so it's got some width to it. It's a, it's like a regular
1: tree stand. It's just like you chopped it in half and cut it at the cables
0: <laughs> where the cables go down to the platform.
1: And funny enough, that's how a lot of DIY saddle platforms are made back, you know, Back in the day before before tethered came up, it's like how many of those cut up old lone wolf tree stands did you see on the forums? It seemed like there's quite a few of them,
2: yeah,
0: which is kind of a shame. Those things are the best ones out there. <laughs> I, I did one before I up one of those.
1: I still have a not a like original original, but I got a fifteen year old lone wolf sitting in the garage that still had the one inch tubing and like even with yeah. all the mods and stuff added to it still only weighs like 10 and 5 Yeah. That's
0: the one I have is nine and a quarter with the strap.
1: The only issue it has is that those, the V brackets on the platform, they were narrower back then. So unless you added a second strap, if you had mm-hmm. a hard bark tree, they were more prone to kick out. Whereas I feel like they yep. widened out that V bracket a little bit more in the, the newer models yeah i was
0: i was talking to andre about those stands and he was telling me those things he's like those things are tough as iron he's like those are all heat treated like they go through a lot of heat treating process and everything like like he's like those he's like those things you could beat the crap out of and they don't break
1: interesting yeah i know that i know that that yeah it's definitely a very process dependent thing on the all the the tethered stuff um The aluminum and, like, the heat treating is all done to where, like, it's kind of, it's based off the same premise, right? Like, you don't want your cast to be super brittle, Mm -hmm. so you have to pick the best balance of, you know, your alloy that's going to give you the strength, but also, like, a little bit of ductility so that you can absorb, yeah, you know, without, you know, give a little bit without just catastrophically snapping. And those mm-hmm. things pretty consistently have always broken. I think in like the 1200 pound range when they just load up the end of yeah. them, I think, but I'll, I'll drop my platform. Out. Like if I'm done with a the hunt, i I'll just drop the platform out of the tree and just let it hit the ground and I'll just pack it up and put it away. Like I never had any, never have any issues with durability with them. Yeah. You don't have rocks
0: like Pennsylvania though. Well, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> I think you had some issues to be true on the rocks in Pennsylvania every night. Plus the deer would hear you for about eight miles.
1: Yeah. A lot of times <laughs> I'll, well, sometimes I'll wrap the platform up and I'll put it back on the hook and, you know, I'll climb down. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times if I toss it down, I'll either, if I'm trying to be quiet, I'll see like a, a sapling that's nearby and just kind of like toss it into the sapling. And then it like kind of mm-hmm. hangs up in the branches and then flips out and lands on the ground nice and soft. Or like throw it in grass. tell you what I
0: started doing too.
1: Instead of running my,
0: uh, my, my ropes and stuff on my saddle, on the bag, I took that all off. Yep. And now I have a detachable bag for my ropes. So when I'm walking, I wear the saddle in when I'm walking, but uh-huh. I put the ropes in, a, in my backpack that's strapped onto the platform. So I, I have my gear in there, and then I have it—I have it in a little fanny pack, stuffed inside my backpack. So when I get to climb to the tree, I'll put my fanny pack on with my ropes instead of having it attached to my saddle. But I found that was just like way more comfortable
1: for walking in than having the bag. St- Are you still using bigger ropes? Yeah, Wait. still using the same okay. ones. So, so that's yeah. If you could switch to like eight millimeter ropes, then. That becomes a lot less of an issue.
0: Yeah, because I had those heavy aluminum hooks with my gear hooks on them.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I started using a, I made a DIY lineman's rope out of 6-millimeter TRC, I think mm-hmm. it is, from from uh, Sterling, I want to say. Um, and then I just used, like, the smaller carabiners that still have an adequate weight rating. And just by downsizing that, you know, I'm using the 8-millimeter tether – From tethered Mm -hmm. with the the rope man and the a smaller carabiner and it's a big difference i mean it's a big difference in bulk but also there's a difference in weight and like if you're carrying it in your backpack the difference in weight is like probably not even enough that you would notice but when Mm -hmm. it's weight that's just like on your hips like that you'll notice cutting half that weight out yeah
0: but when i did that too i i I found i just didn't have it as much like because i was getting like my pack and my platform were kind of pushing against my, my saddle. Yep. It was like kind of hiking it down on me and stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yep. It'll pull it down like, and then you need suspenders to, to keep the saddle up. Yep.
0: yep. Yeah. So I basically, I just, when I took all that crap off and just made it smooth on the back again, it was like, now it's, now it's just wearing a, a tree diaper and it doesn't bother me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's a good point. There's a lot of people that, you know, where they're all their stuff on their saddle and, you know, people that keep the saddle clean and carry the stuff in. And I think there's good arguments to be made for both, but there's no doubt about it. If you got just a bare saddle with not a whole lot hanging off of it, you forget that it's on. Cause it's just like an extension to your body. Yeah. And
0: that's it. I kind of just liked it better that way. Cause I, I've walking really far sometimes.
1: Yeah. You know,
0: I'm walking a lot too. I'm not.
1: Plus I'm if you're. People. If you're wearing bibs over the top of your saddle and you got pass through pockets, then mm-hmm. there's no like restrictions. Like it just slides on nice and easy over the top. But otherwise, if you got if you got full pouches, they kind of get in the way. Or like that I-wom, Um, I got a I did a, a video on if you could use an mm-hmm. iwam with a saddle, and and you can, um, but like when you're putting it on, if you got Pouches full of stuff that kinda of hang up a little bit and takes you a little bit longer to get the, the suit over top of those pouches. If you're not wearing pouches mm-hmm. it's not an issue.
0: Yeah.
1: That's the uh, those those stupid puppy pants, the 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 best invention ever. You put those, those on over the top you put those on over the top of the saddle? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and now you,
0: without the back the back it's even better.
1: Yep, yep. Yeah, because if you don't have pouches there, because if you have the pouches, then it's like okay, do I try and like stretch the pants over top mm-hmm. of the pouches, which doesn't work that well, or do you like slide them up underneath? But yeah. if you don't have pouches, there, it's not an issue. I actually tried going pouch free a little bit, early, or the early part of the season, because I was using the Eberhart saddle, mm-hmm. and uh, like John doesn't wear pouches on his saddles. Like he just wears the the saddle all by itself, and then he'll have his just like you have been doing. He'll you know carry in his his, uh, accessories in a pack. And mm-hmm. I tried that a little bit, but like I was, I was so used to just being able to reach down and grab that stuff.
0: Yeah. You were forgetting it. In uh, yeah. Pack. Like
1: it just, well, I wouldn't forget the stuff, <laughs> but it was just like, I had like this mental hurdle. Cause I was so used to doing it one way. Um, yeah. I'm sure if I stick with it, like you stick with anything long enough, you get used to it. So that's yeah, it like
0: when i went back to the tree stand it took me a took me like a good week and a half to get it back in my head to have a different system yep but but the, i was using that rock climbing harness and that was definitely an improvement in that but it's just i think the saddle's better for me yeah i'm more i'm more comfortable in the saddle if i have to get in a tree without extra like limbs or anything I feel like I feel like you almost get like from being in the saddle and having that security with that rope for so long. You almost get like vertigo standing in
1: the tree stand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're like,
0: oh man, I could just fall right out of this thing.
1: Yeah, I've, I've talked to I've talked. It's funny I've talked to people that said the same thing, and I haven't I haven't had a stand for a while, but I, I definitely had that feeling when I'd go back and forth between the two, to where when I was hunting out of a stand again, I would I would have that safety harness hiked up so high on the tree to where like if i was sitting down it was almost tight because then if i leaned a little bit like i could feel the tension there that gave me more more comfort um yeah and yeah and it it was
0: like i was some situations like i would want to go high but i just wouldn't go high because i wouldn't feel comfortable right you know i'm like i'm like yeah this is probably dumb so i'm like i'm gonna get back in the saddle and then i killed my bucks I killed the, the the one buck this year. I killed him at 21 feet. And then the other buck I shot that thing at, I was eight feet off the ground. So sometimes it doesn't matter, but sometimes it does, I
1: guess. Yep.
0: That's like that big buck that came down out of that bowl that I missed this year. I'm like, man, I'm like, I was set up like, I think i was six feet off the ground in a walnut tree like it was like it was a good place to hide but i was like man i'm like if i was in a saddle and i was up higher for that for that instance i was like man i, pr- I could have hid behind it because I, I didn't have any good concealment to set up with the tree stand yeah you know with, with the platform i'm like man if i had a saddle in that situation i could have came off the back of the tree and felt like, I, I would have had concealment from that deer because he came in so freaking close. And, like, the way, the way he came in, it was, like, he got so close to me. I was, like, worried it was just going to catch my wind and blow out. So it caused, caught, caused me to kind of put myself in a position of shot that I really didn't want to take. But I kind of was like, I got to take this one. You know, and I'm like, man, if I was in the saddle, I could have just kind of leaned out and let that sucker go right underneath me. And I could have swung around and shot. You know, and with the tree stand, it wasn't going to work that way. Right. You know, I'm like, I'm like, that one kind of screwed me. I'm like, I think I probably could have been better off with the saddle on that deer. You no, know, 'cause cause that, that was a bad one. I, that was like embarrassing to even miss that deer. Like I, I, I still haunting me, you know, it was like a hundred, it was probably a hundred sixty, hundred seventy inch 10 pointer. Yeah, big buck. And then I missed him at, like, 10 yards. I'm like, how did I even do this? I'm like, I don't even understand how I missed this deer. Like, it was incredibly stupid that I missed him. That one might have not been a mechanical issue. Because <laughs> <laughs> at that range, I don't think it would have been mechanically po- possible to be off far enough. I think I, right. I just straight up, I just straight up blew it. You know, it was like monster buck. It would have been the biggest buck I ever killed. But I'm gonna try to get him this winter because I just found out that nobody shot him. There you go. So, because I was like, I'm like, I was like praying he was gonna make it through this week. Because this week was gun season, you know, and I didn't hear of anybody getting them. I called up, I called up the game warden even, because like he usually knows everything because he lives right down the road from where this deer deer is. I'm like, did anybody shoot that big giant ten pointer over there? He's like, not that I know of. I'm like, well, if you don't know of it, I don't think it's dead, because that that deer would have been somebody would have said something about that deer. So if he makes, if he's still there, I'm going to put in some effort to try to shoot him.
1: That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.